The situation now is even worse. Flood is not above the poverty line. All right, well, we've we've started the thing. Um, welcome to this week's Floodcast. I'm really excited. We've got um, we're going to be talking a little bit about the budget and what happened. It's Floodget two to yeah. budget to Floodget or something. I don't know. Um, where we've got Maddie here with us, and we've got a special guest, Jeremiah. Hello. Hi. Um, I definitely have no, oh, I'm Declan, I definitely have no, like, ability to speak about the budget in any meaningful sense, but um, both of these two have, have done, like, like more than a normal person should to understand how budgets work, so I'll let them each kind of talk about how they do that. Uh, well, yeah, I guess I'll go first. I'm a recovering uh, budget addict. Um, I, so I used to work um, for the Treasury in Canberra. Um, and I used to do uh, modelling stuff, mostly modelling like tax and social security policy. But our little um, sort of parcel of nerds was like disrupted every year by getting sucked into the budget vortex. Um, and we were one of the many people who were like tasked with making numbers, uh, which we can talk about later. Um, but yeah, that really sort of seasonally structures the year there. Um, so I've m totally moved away from that world now, but um, I still find myself really sucked in back every year, at least interested in like how they're reporting the budget and the spin that goes on it. Uh, yeah, I guess I'll introduce myself. So I'm Jeremiah. Uh, I'm a research fellow in social policy at the Centre for Social Impact. Um, and I previously had been like, until maybe when I joined CSI, like not super interested in the nitty gritty details of the budget, but we as a team cover the budget. We like um, different team members will have their area of expertise and we sort of look at just what's been announced in our areas and if there's any positives for, um, usually it's across the for purpose sector, which is where we do most our work. But um, we look across the different policy areas and I looked at some of the stuff for employment policy, unemployment, um, and if there's any, been any changes to social security, um, both in terms of rates of payment, but also I'm looking at like the mechanisms that are attached because sometimes they change policy mechanisms and we'll probably get into some of that uh, as we talk about this. I, I still can't get over its great name, Floodget to Flood to Budget. Very good pun. Every episode needs a wet name. That's how we roll at Flood. Um, uh, one of the things I was kind of interested about like the budget I want to talk to Maddie about was like a little bit like how it works because I was like I tried to like read the budget papers first and I was really surprised by how politically framed it was like it mm. felt it felt like it was a liberal party document much more than a like a public service document um, and I was wondering like what what kind of working the department's like in terms of like producing it. Yeah, well, I think firstly, traumatic. Uh, some very unsafe work conditions in the budget. Um, it is, yeah, it's a great point that it looks like a Liberal Party document. I would say something that's really easy to forget about um, is that it is this weird hybrid sort of monster of like a public service document and a political document. So technically, it's the responsibility of um, the Treasury Department, but they're working for the Treasurer, who is a politician. Um, and so you've got kind of all these, um, you know, all the departments come up with their figures of kind of how much they think they'll spend this year, all this kind of stuff. The Treasury comes up with all these numbers, like their best estimates of how much tax will be collected, how much X, Y, and Z will cost. And then you have from various places these policy proposals coming. You know, sometimes there's things that are um, planned in advance and costed. Sometimes they're things that random ministers or random staff are like coming up with on post-it notes like in the middle of the night and running around the hallway going like how many trillion dollars will it cost to do x and then you sort of make a spreadsheet and that becomes truth somehow um, but you have all these policies sort of converging from different places and all of this kind of goes mainly through cabinet which is the sort of top tier ministers but a lot of it just all that's happening is the treasurer the finance minister and the prime minister are sitting in a room with some of their staff and they're going kind of this is in this is out um, but the whole thing is this sort of really political process. So you've got people who work for the Department of Treasury and people who work for the ministers working really closely and they're really interested in messaging. So if you open up like the budget website and you look at the top and you start scrolling down, there'll be like all these pictures. So this one's got like a woman working in some kind of like um, big machinery thing. There's some kind of healthcare picture, someone building a house, something to do with COVID. So these are all their kind of narratives for the budget. 
Um, and generally these go so the journalists um, all get like go to Parliament House for a day. It's this huge like pomp and circumstance thing. And they get locked in there with the budget papers for a day to somehow read and digest them all over a few hours. And the things they're given firstly are these things which in Treasury are called the glossies, which are like these glossy brochures about all the kind of headline policies. So these is like real it's really interesting to see, I guess, the public service working so closely with the government in framing this narrative. Because they'll come to you and say, like, you know, they might have a policy in mind, but then they'll go, How do we get some numbers? Like, how do we get a graph? that presents this the way we want it or you know we have a hole in the in the healthcare space you know what is there we can do like what department's got something we can do that's going to give us like nice photos nice narrative so this is kind of like all the fluff on top of the budget like these main um, policy these like headline policy proposals but then under it all I think you have the real meat of the budget which is what's the tax we're collecting what are the forecasts for economic growth what's all the spending and a lot of that kind of ticks along from year to year, you know, the departments are spending the same amount and sometimes they make really big changes there. Like um, a few years ago, they were fiddling around with something called the efficiency dividend, which was this attempt to make the public service cheaper. So they said to every department, you have to reduce your budget by 1% and the way you do it is up to you. So this just kind of went in the budget as one number, efficiency dividend 1%. But the result of that was that like across the board, whether it was at Centrelink, whether it was in... You know, schools like everywhere across the economy, you have public service departments in their own way trying to cut back. So either firing people, buying, le buying less staplers, like God knows, like all kinds of stuff. So often these really big changes are happening just kind of really low down in the budget papers um, where you adjust kind of what's the, you know, you might only adjust by a tiny bit. What's the amount that the Social Security Department's got to spend this year or what's the amount that the Defence Department's got to spend this year? Um, and I think I'll finish this enormous rant soon, but I think the other interesting thing there is that on the tax side of it, um, they get all these projections that are supposed to be Treasury's kind of unbiased estimate of this will be our economic growth this year, this will be unemployment, this will be wages, but all this stuff is really sensitive, you know, it's people are doing their best, but you can't predict the future. And so all these models have things going into them like this is what the Australian dollar will do, this is what iron ore prices will do, blah, blah, blah. And if you fiddle a tiny bit with one of those parameters, it can have a huge impact on the GDP and the tax collections for that year. So often there's this really kind of behind closed door political process where, you know, you put some numbers up um, and Minister sees them and goes, mm, is that really the case? Are you sure? Isn't our growth going to be a tiny bit better? And it's this kind of like fiddling, fiddling that really shapes, you know, how much you've got to spend yeah, I was really surprised, like, when I was reading the stuff, like, because it was talking about the, the income tax cuts, which are, like, flowing through from a few old budgets and stuff. But, the, like, the budget papers were like, oh, yeah, like, these personal income tax cuts, we expect to create 20,000 jobs, which just seemed to me like such a unlikely claim for a public service to make. Like, the public service is so inherently kind of conservative with its estimates, and that's such a, like, ideological and, like over-the-top claim that it seemed really hard to back up? Well, some of the people I used to work with used to pretty much have those models which were, you know, if you do X change to a certain tax, this will be the impact on jobs. And a lot of those, um, the people running those models were really not confident in them. And it would be pretty much sure a big part of your job was to be kind of pushing back where people are going, okay, we need a firm number about, you know, changing this childcare benefit will create this many jobs. And that's like, realistically, you can't really, you can't say much about it. Um, but yeah, they'd be really pushing for firm numbers and they'd be pushing for numbers that stretched over like the next 20 years or something. Whereas even by the standards of like dodgy fake economics, the only thing this model would tell you was be, you know, if you did it tomorrow and nothing else in the world changed, we can estimate, you know, this many jobs. But obviously people like change their behavior and do all kinds of things in relation to policy. So yeah, I would say all those numbers are real fake numbers. But yeah, it's, um, you know, I think the certainly the Treasury and Finance like and the Prime Minister and Cabinet fully enter into the circus of this kind of uh, narrative massaging. I think that's also really interesting in the sense that like most of these estimates that come out, they're not reported with their confidence 
levels. Mm. So like some estimates you can be reasonably confident about when you what you're you're making and what you're saying. Others you're really not very confident about and there's a wide range of possible outcomes. It's not like, oh yeah, well like we're estimating it'll be 10,000 jobs and the standard deviations like 1,000 jobs. It's like, no, no, we're going to estimate it's 10,000 jobs. The standard deviations 9,000 jobs. Okay, like, you know, there's the estimation is kind of wild. My area that I work in is in financial well-being and looking at um, the system around financial well-being. And, like, there's all these, like, complex uh, challenges. So any policies that are targeted towards, say, like, improving um, employment outcomes actually need to factor in not just whether, oh, what, what's the labour supply, but, like, also who can get to the particular job? Where would those jobs happen who will be able to take up those jobs without relocating what are our assumptions about what kind of people can relocate to actually take up employment if if you're doing like um i mean there's been a number of agricultural funding things offered over not just like this budget but recently that it's really questionable like if it makes sense for people to take up seasonal working there was um i think they upped the relocation grant from 3,000 to 6,000, but there's all these little catches. So um, the relocation grant to go to agricultural work, if you take that, you have to work a minimum of 40 hours in the position to get the reimbursement. You can get the cash up front so it can help you to move, but at the same time, you need to know that the job you're gonna go to, you're gonna wanna stay there because otherwise you're gonna be out of pocket for it. And if you think about the low income that you're going to be getting from that employment, it's really unlikely that um, you're going to be in a position to be able to absorb risk in your employment. Um, yeah, absolutely. Point. And often the people designing the policies, like in the individual departments, are fully across that. But um, I'd say, like, on one hand, there's the cynical view, which is that the government doesn't actually care about um, this outcome of getting people in regional jobs so much as they care about having, like, a headline policy that seems to address that. I think that's sometimes the case. Um, and yeah, I think on the other hand, like I've been in so many meetings where, you know, you'd put up a table and you might have like a sensitivity analysis in there or some um, quantification of your confidence. And you've got like a million assumptions and caveats written under. You've got a big table. First thing is they delete all the assumptions, take one number out of the table, pop it in a press release. And then the next minute, you know, someone is saying it on TV and it's like, oh my God, that doesn't mean anything like that. Like all we could confidently say was, X will change. So yeah, it's a um, it's a it's a really interesting I think push and pull in there between you you know the higher you get in the public service, and you get into these um, positions at the top that are quite politicised because they're appointed by politicians and can be fired. Um, these people at the top are often really pushing to kind of fit in with political narratives or to give them what they want, which is you know one single number, and people in the middle of the chain are often trying to do some decent work, but in these yeah conditions that really don't let you. Um, yeah, offer anything in the way of um, sensitivity or assumptions or any, um, I guess the other thing is that, you know, any kind of modeling you would do or any kind of science you would do, you would never just do it and not look back at it. Whereas that's pretty much the norm for the budget. Like occasionally something will happen like um, the um, resources tax, which was supposed to, you know, collected a fraction of what it was supposed to collect. It's only when something goes really wrong like that that you actually look back and go, okay, was any of that modelling reasonable? Is anything we're saying have any basis in truth? Because it's always just pushing on to the next budget, next number. Yeah, there was um, actually some good stuff. I think it was um, Grog's Gamut um, from Twitter that had done the analysis that was like highlighting assumptions about wage growth that had been in every single budget and how optimistic those assumptions had been, optimistic those assumptions had been, um, that um, one of, like the, the, the government has aggressively targeted unemployment with some of the policies, and we'll get to some of my criticisms of the mechanisms they've used. But one of the things that is just totally missing is wage stagnation, which has mm. been an ongoing issue for Australia. And um, yeah, the assumptions about wage growth are kind of... Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the first things I do when I um, um, look at the budget papers, like budget, and the first thing I do is scroll down and look at there's forecasts of GDP, unemployment, wage growth. 
and you can see there so they have some standard kind of numbers they assume like usually it's about over the long term three and a half percent growth in GDP uh, maybe three percent in wages um, two and a half percent inflation and usually in a budget they'll they'll do some kind of modeling they'll acknowledge the situation like at the moment very low GDP they'll acknowledge it for about two years and then they'll kind of just send that line back up to the trend line um, so yeah there's some interesting I've yeah I've seen them in um, Grogonomics's blog before some really interesting like long-term comparisons of those before because this happens every single budget like they say GDP is going to be fine it's going to be just what it normally is wage growth is going to be back to normal within about three years and then obviously it never makes it there and you're always underperforming um, which I guess in in a certain sense doesn't matter because the thing that they're of often most concerned about is reducing the deficit so if you don't get that GDP growth you don't reduce the deficit like that I mean my perspective is you don't really need to reduce the deficit like that but anyway but yeah it's this real just kind of rolling um, rolling chaos yeah rolling chaos I think is a good term for it <laughs> I was just going to circle back to one of the things you were talking about Maddie um, with the like messaging and narrative mm. there's an excellent episode I actually tracked down because I knew I would mention it today um, episode four of the hollow men is um, the week that they do the budget and they're like the the treasury reporters it, it's like oh this is a really disciplined just a good budget and then the, the prime minister's office are like we need to spend some big stuff um, and and then they go about just embedding oh, is, into is this the, the one where they're making the initiative yeah, they just like they invent some initiative and like I think it's then a future fund or something. A centerpiece, like, yeah. I've actually yeah, watched and, this and, episode and I've also been involved in a process very similar to this. It was yeah. frightening. <laughs> right, but like it is, and and if you go and look at some of the stuff that is included in the budget. Yeah, so um, this is this episode is is definitely worth a watch. They come, they decide they're missing a centerpiece. And they come up with the name of the centerpiece, which is something like Advancing Australia or something along those lines. It's Future Proof the Nation. A Future for the, the Nation, the yeah. They film a whole ad campaign. They take the photos. They've got all the documents ready, but they still haven't figured out what the initiative is. It's, it's a real classic. And yet, I think the very next year, pretty much about the same time after that, I was working at Treasury and their big headline initiative the next year was Building Australia's Future Workforce or something, which was such a similar name that it just killed me. Yeah, that, that episode is just on on the nose. But yeah, the, the reason that I think like I brought it up is that one of the things that we do see um, embedded when, when we see like, oh, there's been X billion, like $1.7 billion spent on, uh, like that was the amount that was announced for funding childcare support. But actually none of that comes into effect this year. So um, mm. it won't come into effect until 2022. So on, on what like... It's actually an assumption that that'll even get off the ground. Like yep. that nothing will be, and, and a lot of these announcements, the the number, there's like a big juicy number. And this is where it fits into that idea of like the message, messaging and narrative. You can talk to specific groups and be like, oh, we're throwing like X dollars at you as a group and this is what we're doing to support you. But when you scratch below the surface, the real values usually like one-tenth of that because they'll have costed it across 10 years even though no program lasts 10 years. They always usually do it over four years and if they're really scratching around to make it impressive, they'll do it over 10. That's when you know they're really trying to pull the con because the standard is four. But yeah, often even with that four years, it might start at the end of that period and I've seen a number of times initiatives get cut before they even come into force. So they'll announce it in a budget um, get the bounce for the headline and then maybe six months or 18 months later cut it and usually people don't notice because that will happen in like a mid-year budget update that doesn't get as much press. Um, the other interesting thing with that with the Fords there is you know things like the big um, personal tax cut that we might talk about later where they're reducing tax on people who own over 200 grand. Um, they'll usually cost it um, you know, so say it costs 20 billion in the first year, so they'll say, okay, it costs 20 billion, but then something like a tax cut, the value of it will be increasing over time. So you, this kind of costing methodology really minimizes the cost of tax cuts, um, and then it sort of blows up the value of spending. So in the case of those personal tax cuts, they will have like tripled within, you know, a couple of decades, assuming they go ahead. 
but that's all kind of um, water under the bridge by the time you get there because by the time you um, report on next year's budget that will be baked into kind of the standard budget and the only thing journos will talk about or look into will be those nice little pictures up the top. It seems like journos do a, like a horrifically bad job of looking at the budget, like particularly because they don't look at these like long-term assumptions and stuff like that. Um, we are kind of chatting a little bit like before we started recording about like what reading the budget is like for, like for both of you guys versus like what what reading it must must be like for a journal when part of a lockup and that sort of thing. Mm. Yeah, they have this very weird situation where they all get locked in a room in Parliament House and they have their phones taken off them and they're supposed to just be like typing the stories up in advance and kind of somehow extracting meaning out of these various printed documents that they're given there. Um, and then there'll be different like government officials around the place that they can ask questions of, but they're so lacking in context and they're presented with this whole like wall of numbers and text that usually their questions don't have any, um, any meaning at all, really. Yeah, it's really hard to press down on particular issues. And then one of the other things I would say about that, right, is like all these different journalists, they're not acting in a coordinated manner to say, I'll go in depth on this one portion of the budget, you go in depth on this other one. What tends to happen is every outlet wants to cover the whole budget. So they do all the headline large expenditure figures, some of the smaller stuff maybe warrants a mention if it's on a particular policy area that's salient in the news cycle at the time. So some of the expenses related to um, women and domestic violence copped an extra mention back when the budget came out because of some of the stories that are in the news cycle at the time. But then um, other stuff, they don't dig with any depth into how that money is actually spent. Like one of the things I looked at, um, I was just curious that, so there's a, program called Career Revive um, and Career Revive received $2.6 million in extra funding announced over three years, right? Like it's the next three years, not just one, so that the number's even bigger. Um, but the Career Revive is an initiative for um, middle-aged women returning after having children to the workforce. Um, so you'd think that it would be targeted towards women, but actually the project gives money, that money's paid to KPMG to run, um, as far as I can tell, like I went and looked on the website, I, I dug into it a little bit, I haven't done like days and days of analysis on it, but they do a physical workplace review, for, and this is all for regional businesses, so they do a physical workplace review, consult with the business about how to improve um, the workplace so that women returning from work, uh, returning to work after a couple of years off with having children, can come back into the workforce and they do case studies on how to be more inclusive for all businesses. And then they have like a couple of documents on the website. This is like a $2.6 million program. And the four documents are like inclusive recruitment, parental leave, supported returner program starter pack and like a workplace flexibility stuff. It's like, you could draw this, like I could get some students to draw that up on a napkin. Um, like it's, absurd that this is like what the project is when you can think about hang on if we're you know bringing back women to the workforce we could just create positions for them like for 2.6 million dollars it it uh the pro project or the program um from what i could tell handled like 10 businesses per year 10 businesses like if you divide that even over four years that's like you know uh $500,000 for 10 jobs, um, but that's filtered through KPMG. So really this is like a business subsidy tagged under that it's for women. And there's like a whole bunch of things like that. Yeah, that's you... a great, it's a great find. It's interesting when you, um, you know, I think the fact that this never gets out, you know, I think when you think, you know, you've got like your headline budget document. Um, the other one that I often look at is budget paper two, which is like a list of all the initiatives. So it's like essentially a big table that says how much each individual thing will cost. And you've got these numbers in there in like billions, but then under each one is just like a paragraph or a half a paragraph. So this is one I just randomly scrolled to national housing and homelessness agreement. The government will provide 124 million over two years to support workers in the housing and homelessness sector. The funding will be provided to states and territories to assist them to bolster public housing stocks. Full stop. Like, that's it. 
So who, God knows what that money's doing. It could be going to KPMG. It could be going nowhere. In the case of something that's a pretty small amount, like 100 million, probably by the time they print, like, you know, make themselves a website, you know, get some business cards, print it out, set up a few stuff, like that's the money. There's nothing else being spent. Um, so yeah, when you, it's really like startlingly shallow when you start to look at what these different things are, you know, um, whether it's a small or a big amount of money, it will have this like one to two paragraphs and to actually get the detail of what those two paragraphs mean is a job that I think is really beyond, well, certainly beyond journos the way they work at the moment. Um, I think in your vision of people specializing, it's actually possible. Um, but yeah, I guess my dream, yeah, budget coverage would really go into, you know, pick a few policies and go, what the hell even is this? And then take a step back from it and go, well, you know, if what we care about is women in the labor force, then let's take those headline numbers like spending on childcare, you know, spending on women's super, spending on whatever, what's happening with those numbers? Uh, because often you'll find that, for example, while you put a few hundred million into some childcare initiative, you'll have like billions being taken out of the same thing somewhere else. One of the things you said before, Maddie, that um, kind of piqued my interest and it like actually completely lines up with what Jeremiah just said about KPMG is how much those like those big four accountancy companies run the public service to a degree far, far beyond what, what anyone kind of grasps. I can't remember what you were saying about the budget, but it was like, I guess like talking about the public servants making kind of assumptions. But then like, obviously I know that there's so many consultants in the public service now and like it sounds so right to me that they'd be getting this incredibly sweetheart deal for a policy that they probably came up with and like you know they probably like had dinner with the, the like the politician who proposed it and it, yeah, it's definitely. very frustrating and often it's not a policy it's like a policy in the form of like write a report do a study it's not any concrete type of funding yeah and then just to jump in on that i was just said like an 80 like 99 percent of the time let's say it's not like we don't know the answer already there's extensive research on this going back to support someone in the workforce. Like, it's not hard to, you could have an academic to consult on the project. Some would probably do it for free. If, like, I know that people in my sector, when they have the opportunity to have policy input, like if they can actively shape something in the area that they work in, that's good and you take that opportunity. Um, and the, the sad thing is there's probably also people working within those departments that have some really good ideas or have the experience on this, but often you can get kind of lost in this like power struggle between departments where whoever's writing the budget, you know, the prime minister or the treasurer goes, eh, like I don't trust all those people over at, you know, the people who care about families or the people who care about social security. We're going to contract that out and like, we're going to bring it in, manage it ourselves and like get it done by KPMG and get it done properly. So even within the public service, I think there's this real um, weird, yeah, competitiveness and like consultation even within that wastes a huge amount of money and a huge amount of expertise. I mean, part of that is tied to there, there are specific, um, I, I talk quite a lot about mechanisms. Um, so whether it's the mechanism of delivery um, or, or constraints or targeting of, of social expenditure, a good example, right? So the, I mentioned before that there was 1.7 announced in um, increased funding for childcare, 1.7 billion. Um, it's over X years or whatever. But the way that that's structured, the payment only comes in for your second child in childcare. So if you only have one child in childcare, it doesn't help you with the cost of childcare. Um, and then it fund, like covers 95% after that um, or around something like that. But the whole point is that like, um, if, if you're a single mother um, and you're, you've got one child, it doesn't help you at all. But there's, you know, the announcement is, oh, it covers childcare. Um, and there's a lot of headline announcements where it's actually a very narrow targeting mechanism that is really actually used to restrict access to someone. We've seen um, at the moment with the NDIS, there's all these... Um, changes to the IA. Um, that's like the oh, is, it, is it impact assessment? I, I can't remember what the I stands for, but it's the assessment for the eligibility. So they're they're changing who can do that to preclude some people from getting access um, because oh yeah, sorry, it's an independent assessment. That's the term, um, and that changing will reduce the number of people who have access to the the system, and then use that as a cost-cutting mechanism. 
Um, but there's so there's things like oh they're gonna fully fund the NDIS, but for the five people who they deem eligible to actually get it, right? And there's there's these little tricks that people miss um, with some of the increases that we see and some of the changes. And, well, and I, I think when you're, when you're looking at this, um, for me, I'm partly guided by the numbers because in the scheme of a federal budget, millions are nothing and things in the single billions are pretty much nothing as well. Like if you kind of look at how much you spend overall, like every year we collect something in the realm of, say, $500 billion in tax and pay out kind of $500 billion. I think at the moment it's like a paying out $600 billion-ish. So if you're not changing things, you know, if you're trying to dream of a change that is like meaningful to childcare or meaningful to health, and you're thinking about, okay, currently we're spending 600, now we're going to spend 601, of course that means nothing. Like there must be something going on that means that this isn't a meaningful change. Uh, maybe it's so far in the future, maybe it's, yeah, comes with, often they, they give with one hand and take away with the other, as you say, restricting access. But unless you're doing something really in the hundreds of billions, you it's not a drop. Was there anything that you um you really noticed reading through the budget, Jeremiah? Like, was any of the figures kind of stick out? Because for me, what I like what what seemed like the biggest thing was something that happened in the budget a few years ago about the the like the huge tax cuts and the plan to like just move us to you know the the conservative wet dream of uh, like a flat tax rate. So I think. After 2024, the, the plan is to have 95% of Australian wage earners on the same tax rate of 30%. Um, so between 45000 a year and 200000 a year will all be on that. And of like obviously, that means that a lot of rich people pay a lot less tax and there's a lot less money to go around for things like public housing or, or employment help or whatever it is. Yeah, that isn't... Absolutely massive one. That one, I had a look at that one, and that's like in the tens, 30, getting up to 50 billion a year by the time we're not many decades away, that one. So when you weigh that against your however many billion to spend on childcare. Um, and these ones really stress me out a lot because they're like, they're setting the basis for future budgets. Like that's where we're going to start from. Yeah, I was going to say that um, like stuff like that stage three tax cut. One of the things that we see with the way that um, I would say it, it's a tendency on the, the part of conservative governments to do that. But I mean, like, um, we've seen similar sorts of policy shifts among Labor governments as well. So it's not as if it, or, and centre-left governments around the world, it's not just unique to Australia. But it's to make the um, adjustment now to reduce the tax and then use a kind of, like, um, at, at that as the foundation to at a later point exit like and in scare quotes exercise fiscal discipline and reduce expenditure in an area so rather than just straight making the cuts today it's a two-step process you reduce the rate of tax and then somehow you've got to pay for that um, but the the pay for it later uh, enables you to use well we've got to make this saving somewhere because that's how we're going to pay for this deficit um, but that's ignoring that five years earlier you made that deficit happen in the first place. You could like just r remove, like I, I was actually surprised that the stage three tax cuts, I mean, there's, there's ideological reasons it didn't happen, but I was surprised that that wasn't something that they went to, to add some of the balancing to the budget. I definitely expect that a labor government would have gone after something like that. Um, I was very frustrated by their, rhetoric around oh deficits 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 like today is not the day to be talking about deficits when, when it came out um but yeah there's like a well, lot I think, of the... i think they're a little bit lucky with this budget in that whether it comes to pass or not their forecast for gdp growth um not so much for wages but their forecast for like spending of people in australia i think assuming that a lot of our money is trapped in australia in a way um, by COVID for a long time and thus they get collecting more GST money um, and more corporate tax like they've got really good kind of tax forecasts so they've kind of like sidestepped it I think and they've been able to keep that there um, and who knows what will come to fruition by the time like probably most of that tax won't get collected but they've been fortunate enough to say yay our economy's fine our deficit will kind of naturally go down so they've avoided that even having to reckon with the tax cuts at this stage. Yeah, well, so for me, one of the things that I, I actually was like paying attention to beyond just like the tax cuts, but the um, 
the like introduction of and and the continued utilization of wage subsidies um they're like it's a very to me very frustrating policy mechanism that could be easily conceived of in a different way so we see um like job active transitional work parents next program they're all programs that have a work requirement for or there's an expectation that um, someone on the program will be getting work and to improve those outcomes uh, the and again, it's like it's really interesting the logic of this because the government's logical argument or the, the way that they couch it is that the job seeker isn't doing enough to get work. And um, to lower the bar for them, they introduce wage subsidies into business. But that has an effect, I would argue, of driving down wages and creating shittier quality jobs for people um, because of the way that, like if you think about businesses in the same market and um, if Coles is getting subsidized labor because they're taking on people from all these programs and part of the wage is being paid for um, by the government to subsidize that person's wage, it cheapens the labor cost for them and their competitors have to follow suit. If they don't have access to the same program, um, then or, or they will just target that particular portion of labor and that means that other people in the labor market are going to get paid less to be able to compete for the same jobs. So these kinds of wage subsidies push down, like they kind of are like a secret, I would say, wage suppression mechanism um, by you're paying the business to take the person on. You could very easily conceive of an alternative mechanism where instead of subsidizing the employer, you paid employees a bonus if they were, again, from those same programs and transitioned into work. So the, the business still has to pay the market rate, but the person gets a bonus on top of that. If the, the argument from the government, which is what we tend to see in this area, is that the person um, just isn't trying hard enough to get a job, then that's an extra incentive for them to get the work. Um, but it's not one that distorts the wages in the labor market. In, in a way that drives down wages. Instead, it just like boosts the wage for the, that particular person and it doesn't change what they're competing with someone else for the same job, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, as, we've, as we're talking about with KPMG, you know, the devil is really in the detail here and this really long trend of, I guess, outsourcing and privatisation in Australia, you know, this is the stuff that really slips through the crack when you go, okay, this is the budget reporting. The government is doing X, Y, Z for jobs. It's never going to go deep enough. Certainly I've never seen it go anywhere near. This is what's actually happening. And that when you see this headline number of spending, whatever, a hundred million on this, there's no sense of what is the difference between a person's lived experience getting say a bonus themselves, their employee receiving a wage subsidy, it getting paid to some like cooked privatized, um, you know, Serena Russo kind of person. Um, and this all kind of gets lost in the wash. So I think this really long-term uh, trend in Australia just kind of keeps on grinding. Um, and we've done a real disservice by kind of budget reporting, never drilling into that. Yeah, I was really frustrated to see the way that um, housing affordability was covered in the budget, because I think housing is is like, it's it's the most important political issue in Australia at the moment, I think, and it's it's the basis of the Greens' kind of success is is being a housing party, um, and you know the the kind of like headlines were all like, oh, you know, the budget's actually finally doing something about affordable housing, and it took only like the, the smallest kind of cursory read into those things to see that the program is is home building. It's got nothing to do with with making housing more affordable. It's it's just it's like a COVID like economic stimulus response to put money into the construction sector. So it's, it's largely just, you get 20 grand if you're going to do a big re renovation or you get 20 grand if you're going to buy an off the, like off the plan, like out of suburban home. Yeah. And the current situation is like a builder shortage. So everything just costs 20 grand more as with the previous first homeowner stimulus. But yeah, I mean, I think you're essentially never going to see anything addressing housing affordability in a budget in Australia because no one will ever have the guts to, um, you know, you can't do that without affecting house prices and no politician is going to do that anytime soon. Yeah, like housing is almost like Australia's third rail policy issue. There's the, the only way you ever build, like, do policy for housing in Australia is to support um, or protect 
housing prices so that they're not deflating as an asset. Um, I don't, we've seen that for, I don't even know how many years, decades. Um, and it's very frustrating to see that because, because of the way that it impacts on the rental market as well, right? And then housing affordability becomes a substantial issue. I don't have the stat in front of me, um, but the financial wellbeing report that I'm working on, I've been working on recently, one of the things that we talk about in it is just the, um, the scale of the amount of people who are currently in rental stress. And this was before the pandemic. Um, there's been modified uh, impacts. And, and it's actually got like the, the story of rental stress during the pandemic is kind of complicated, but it also very revealing about how simple it would be to make some adjustments in that area. Um, the number of households that went out of rental stress when we doubled social security payments or had the coronavirus supplement just highlights like, oh, actually, you can alleviate some of this tension relatively easily. Um, but obviously, yeah, that, that's I mean, ultimately, it's pretty simple. You don't need to like set up a KPMG report to look into, you know, this, that and all the other. You just need to give people some money. But that's the, the thing the government is uh, most opposed to. Um, and I guess any budget analysis is never going to zoom out to the level of, you know, where does our money come from? Like, you know, at the moment it comes like, say, half from income tax from people, say a sixth from company tax, a sixth from GST. Well, are we happy with that? Do we want to increase company tax? Are we happy with, you know, how much are we happy with super tax concessions? On the spending side, you know, we spend about as much on education as we do on defense. Are we happy with that? Um, none of that is ever kind of going to enter into the conversation. One of the things that I think is wild, right, is that um, there, there were a range of tax cuts for businesses that were embedded into the, um, and, and capacity to write off asset purchases that were embedded into the budget as a way to stimulate um, expenditure in the economy and, and through that continue to keep driving down unemployment. But 22% of Australian households have social security as their primary source of income. Obviously, some of those are pension, like disability pension or age pension. But increasing their income would have had a significantly greater return on investment in terms of getting that money directly into the economy. So there's like, even when a government has a policy that is maybe outside a little bit of their ideology, you still see it shining through in the mechanisms that they choose to use to drive up that expenditure yeah and that um the write-off stuff is interesting like um when if if you've ever done any research into a sort of corporate tax as paid because you know we have a 30 percent corporate tax rate but when you look at some of those um figures you know Qantas BHP etc pay like zero percent one percent tax um some of that is coming from like from tax avoidance with overseas tax shelters and so on but a lot of that is coming from like losses and write-offs. Um, so a lot of the problem with say like the original mining boom, not much of that was captured in tax. And a big reason was that mining companies have these really huge, like expensive assets that they write off over time. And pretty much every new thing you put on the books in terms of assets, in terms of this, uh, in terms of write-offs, in terms of these accounting is like a new loophole that people are going to be using for the next 20 years and going to be, like evading a huge amount of tax through there. So I think this is like a deeper ideological thing, um, I guess, um, enabling corporations to avoid paying tax uh, that underlies all that type of policy. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I was looking at this. I wanted to talk about the like the instant tax write-offs as well because they're like incredibly frustrating. But what I was really thinking is is like what it does to to stimulate business competition. So like if all of your competitors are able to like instantly write off the, the new pizza machine that they buy or whatever, um, you know, whatever kind of like makes them, them a little bit more profitable. Well, all of a sudden, all of your competitors have just got themselves to the same point really, really quickly by being able to, to do these instant write-offs. And all of a sudden the amount of profit in the system is exactly the same as it was. There's, there's less people with that, that kind of edge over their competitors and like the actual amount of like business profit that's happening is being driven down by this over, like this over investment into, into like writing off kind of assets and buying and then writing off assets rather. Yeah. And then we have this kind of paired with a budget that was actually pretty low on like big infrastructure things. 
So when you think about like ways to pop money into the economy, you could be building something that in theory benefits all that business, or they could be all buying their own um, instant write-off pizza ovens. Well, like almost all the big infrastructure stuff was on, a huge amount of it was on regional highways. And it seemed really kind of easy to see that what what this budget's kind of like looking at the, well, what the Liberal government probably is more accurately is looking at where the Australian economy is going to go over the next little while is increasingly like digging up and selling resources from, from regional Australia and particularly gas. So it was heaps of money being spent on like making highways much, much easier to, for like for, for big trucks, as well as kind of imp- increasing the ability of like in, and rail to take, um, to take stuff to like to, to some of Australia's biggest ports and stuff as well, um, and it's really clear that there's just they're just throwing money at this infrastructure that isn't going to actually improve any like individual person's lives. Like, you know, the 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 really bad state of urban infrastructure in terms of public transport or or housing or whatever it is is completely not to be addressed. But we'll absolutely throw money at something that will facilitate you know, these, these huge corporations just like making massive like super profits that do go into these offshore tax havens, etc. Mm, well, it's also a classic and very simple bit to understand better pork barrelling, having a highway in your electorate. Um, and I think this is not so relevant to the libs, but if you think about a Labor government, um, I think often, you know, something that makes me really mad about Labor is their they won't go to the effort of trying to sell something. So they're they're trying to often trying to do something that will at least give people the impression that their lives are improving, but will come up with this really complex bit of policy or this really targeted bit of policy, whether it's some really specific childcare thing, whether it's a road here, um, because any kind of real transformative thing, like, you know, some people in society need to pay more, some people need to be supported better, like the sales to go into this, they're just like completely unwilling or unable to engage in. So you end up with all this little fiddling and status quo stuff. Yeah, I think that's right. That um, it, it's very frustrating. That, I mean, even at the last election, the um, changes to negative gearing were incredibly complex. I think that good, clear political messaging, simple things that people can grok very easily, are so much more effective. You can run them in a sentence or in a couple of sentences in that like i mean again circling right back to what we were talking about before about like the messaging and the narrative um when when it's actually really clear how it will benefit someone's life that's an added bonus um and you can also start to contest um people that are burying things underneath when you're being very clear and upfront about what you're doing um and so like yeah trying to use complicated targeting mechanisms so that um there's no losers is often a very frustrating, like, oh, we're, we're not going to dramatically increase the expense, for example, for childcare access because someone might have to pay for that. So we'll just keep it restricted to the second child and you'd have two children in healthcare right now. I'm uh, uh, sorry, in, in um, childcare right now. So when the second one gets to school age, you're no longer getting the subsidy or whatever. Like th- these things are really frustrating and convoluted and Oh my god, the whole the whole no losers is just taking me back to budget work in a big way. One of the huge kind of messaging they have is this idea of winners and losers and they'll do this like incredibly intricate analysis of like what will be the effect of every policy on every person. And obviously that's really speculative because you've got so many moving parts. And then they'll be obsessed with, you know, okay, well in this budget 90% of people are winning. And they'll twiddle with like the detail of like the cutoffs and the thresholds so that you've got X many people winning. Um, and maybe what's happening is that most people are getting like a dollar extra a year because of some kind of tax change. Very few people getting any meaningful impact. But if they can say there's only, you know, nobody is losing, then that's good enough for them as opposed to coming out with something. And, you know, it doesn't, um, it doesn't mean anything to anyone to get a dollar, to get a hundred dollars, to get, um, a benefit that they can't actually get because they're ineligible on some really obscure thing. Um, but they're all kind of too cowardly to go, what is something that people actually are going to feel as a win regardless of the messaging? Like, you know, the one we've been campaigning on that is so easy to talk about is dental into Medicare. You don't have to be going out there, you know, with your spreadsheet. Like, people know what difference that will make to them, but we're just in such a different world to that in budget world. was literally going to scream out loudly, dental plan. Like, that's the most obvious one. There's so many, like, yeah, low-hanging fruit like that. 
very frustrating that these are not things that are targeted by our central, notionally centre-left party. Yeah, and you can never go anywhere. You can never say, you know, we are going to raise corporate tax by half a percent and that is going to pay for dental to Medicare. You know, that's a pretty simple thing um, and one that's really meaningful to a lot of people, but there's just no willingness to engage with any of those headline numbers like this is the tax, this is the spending. Yeah, there's just this absolute refusal to engage with with like class conflict from the Labor Party. I was reading because they, I was trying to figure out if they did pass the tax three kind of like tax cuts, um, the stage three tax cuts rather, um, a few years ago. And I found out that they they ended up like, you know, putting up a little bit of a fight and then at the end being like, oh, well, yes, we actually do. I'm pretty you know, sure they do, did. We do want this to go but ahead. But they also roll over on this framing where um, that started a while, maybe, you know, 10 or 15 years ago where, there was this fight about, you know, is 150,000 middle class? And they fully bought into that, this, you know, having 150, 200,000 taxable income for a family is middle class, so we can't be seen to be knocking those people. And I think they're still kind of beholden to that nonsense now. Well, like, the, the like, almost, like, verbatim what they were saying, um, like, this week about, like, about, you know, actually, they, they probably will support these stage three tax cuts, um, was was along the line of like, well, we, we never want to stand in the way of a tax cut. Like tax cuts are like an unambiguous good for, for people. And I I just don't think that's true. And I don't think, I think there's so many people who don't experience it like that. And you'd be so much better off talking about what you can spend with taxes rather than this. And especially when we've got so many people not paying tax that you can easily talk about like, oh, like a land tax would, you know, a land tax would really get gut Gina Reinhardt because she owns... Nearly, Absolutely, nearly or zooming out and going, you know, back in the day, companies used to pay a 50% tax rate or people in the top income bracket used to pay whatever percent tax rate. Like we are so far below. How do we talk about getting that up again to support, you know, real Australians, whatever kind of garbage narrative they want? One other area that um, Australia should be looking at, I would argue, if just purely from a revenue perspective, is inheritance tax, which we once had and we got rid of, and it has cost us the big Yes, we were talking about that a tiny bit in our super episode recently, just the sheer amount of value in super that's going straight into inheritance. Another complex and complicated policy area that arguably doesn't need to be anywhere near as complex as it is. Yeah, and I think one that fights, you know, the um, when looking at the narrative of this budget, along with aged care and whatever kind of jobs, 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 um, there was this this narrative of this as a women's budget, and I don't know, there was some domestic violence funding. Some of it might be reasonable, who knows? But like when paired with the amount of money that is going out of the economy in high income tax cuts, and like these high income tax cuts are going to be hugely skewed to men, like this. There's just no perspective here, like the issues with women's super, with, you know, women on social security payments, none of that is addressed and you get these little twiddles about, you know, childcare for, you know, the 12 children in Australia that happen to meet these conditions. Oh yeah, that was, you just reminded me of another one of the programs that I looked at. Um, the I think this one received criticism when it was originally announced, but this one got extra funding, but the Women in STEM program. Um, and somewhere in there, embedded in there, is um, it's that it's called Champions of Change, um, and so to oh, him, is this the male prove... champions of change? Yeah, exactly, male champions of change. Yeah, it's the, it's the male CEOs, right? To improve women in STEM, they're paying dudes. Like that's that's the solution. Great stuff. Yeah. It checks out, and continuing to cut uni funding. <laughs> um, the other thing which we we haven't um, that kind of struck me in my a little bit of budget reading was, um, you know, I think the this is a great example of often the real staggering cruelty of budgets. So one of the changes that got a little bit of press was um, not allowing refugees onto social security benefits for a certain period of time. Um, and this is one that's going to have, oh, sorry, recent migrants, this is going to have huge amount of impact on people's lives and um, just absolutely horrendous if you want people affected by this but the cost that this saves is like less than half a billion and it's offset by spending another half a billion on um you know immigration detention when in the you know in the context of just like the scads of money going everywhere and often um these things that are sold as savings save almost no money 
just tiny amounts of money, changes that affect um, pretty small populations like, um, you know, the unemployed in the scheme of things in Australia are a very small population compared to age pensioners, compared to people with disabilities. So this change to a tiny number of people, tiny amount of money and just like untold suffering um, under this narrative of savings and deficit reduction. And not only do they make negligible savings within the budget, when you factor in um, like the impact that they have and the service demand that it shifts into the for purpose sector, it ends up like if you're, you end up funding those programs differently so that you just go a long way around to say that, oh, we didn't give money to these people directly, but you're funding programs that are supporting them in some other way because you've put them in a position that is so economically compromised that yeah, you'll probably end up paying a lot more because then you have, you know, interactions, you know, it's the the equivalent of um, saving a little bit of money on GPs and then spending 10 times more on visits to the hospital. Yeah, exactly. It's the same logic. And you see it like, for example, you know, instead of adding a little bit of extra support for someone in rental stress, you make them homeless and now you have to provide services for the person as a like in homelessness and various other compound issues. Or we have things like RoboDebt that collect a little bit of money, but the um, increase in admin costs to be uh, collecting this money and prosecuting it far outweighs it. So it's just purely punitive. Don't get me started on that stuff. It's long and grumpy. Yeah. Yeah, it definitely feels like the cruelty is the point with so much of this budget and with any budget really they're bastards um is there anything else that we want to bring up because we're probably getting close to an hour and we can you know make our final thoughts uh i was just gonna like circle back to that point that like it's really about not just the numbers but the, the mechanisms that are used and that um we people need to pay more attention to what is like this particular not just funding change but is there a restructure of how someone can access something or is there a restructure of um, or, or who who is actually getting the benefit? So like I brought it up before, but like wage subsidies that are paid to business to employ people, you could do that the other way around. You could pay those people extra when they got their job and that would incentivize them, not business, but instead, of, you know, so like all these little things, they don't receive the coverage that I think they really deserve. I spent a lot of my time thinking about forms, mechanisms, all like the minutiae, really juicy stuff. Um, but yeah, that pay, pay attention to mechanisms and you'll start to see how like these kinds of things happen. Right and I think, I think that's really important as well because like I think people's brains are, are not very good at grasping like what, like what, all these really significantly large numbers mean in this wash of other like massive numbers, like 1 billion here, 7 billion there, like 7.8 billion million. Like all, all these numbers don't mean anything to me, but like is, when I hear someone explain like what the mechanism is where, you know, to get women back in the workforce, we're not like, we're not like paying women re-entering the workforce more or things of this nature or actually like just making childcare universal what we're doing is you know paying a consulting company money to like go to other people's businesses and like like do an accessibility map i guess like like hearing the actual mechanisms is way easier for a brain to grasp than hearing these abstract numbers just kind of floating at us like we're in the matrix right and like no one knows how big like the, the numbers are so big you literally our brains cannot comprehend them properly so like if you talk, oh, we spent a trillion dollars on this. Great. I don't know what a trillion dollars is. I don't know what a trillion of anything is. Um, but if you explain to me, oh, we like we did this thing. We changed. We're moving social security services online so that like, and it saves X money. Well, I don't know what the money means, but I do know what turning the services online means um, and, and the kind of issues that's going to raise for people. Like that's easy to understand. But yeah, the, some of the more... Um, just dollar values get and but they're what like i don't know if you went I, I would like to do an analysis of front page headlines and or like new the, the front page articles and how many of them had started with or ran in the title x number of dollars like oh x billion on this thing like okay great what what does that mean as a share of value for our country what i would really love um a favorite tool of um in the budgets are something called cameos, which are these like fake people where they'll select like a number of people, like, you know, there'll be a, you know, single income family with a kid three and eight, there'll be, 
you know, a couple who are on the age pension, blah, blah, these fake people that they see as kind of representative of who the government is trying to appeal to. And they'll say, well, we're helping this person by doing this and this person by doing why. And this is really dodgy, obviously, because they pick um, they pick people that their policies target and fit into all these really specific little uh, criteria. But setting that aside, I would really love some um, fake people that kind of took a much broader view. So, you know, let's look at an Aust a few different types of Australian now, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, and think about, well, what is our society doing for them? You know, what is their wage? What is their employment condition? What are they getting social security wise? What are they paying in taxes? Um, and, you know, maybe this is a corporation, like what has changed over time, like stepping back from this budget and this policy, I agree with you, Jeremiah, the details are so important on the implementation of these things. But zooming out to the big one, you know, where is our society going? Like, what is this budget doing for the allocation of resources um, in a much bigger way than any particular policy? I, I think would really help people get a grasp on um, where we're actually putting our money and where we're moving as a society under these kind of competing visions that successive governments have with their budgets. Yeah, Maddie, you're definitely going to have to read the financial wellbeing uh, insights report that I've been working on. One of the things we have in there is like a vignette that goes through the policy areas and like explains what happens to someone's financial well-being if you just change marginal characteristics about them based off the policy responses we've seen. Fantastic. I might be one of your few kind of members of the public who might actually really get off on this report. Excited. Yeah, yeah. Like you're a sicko. We're all sickos <laughs> if we read it. <laughs> um, but yeah, like th these like minor details that change for people and yeah it's annoying that they name someone who gets the benefit and that's what you see in the in the budget but like who misses out like on the marginally when we use these targeting mechanisms i think like you could very easily like that that's something that is not communicated very clearly like okay what is what does the person who just missed out look like then you start to realize oh they could have made this much more expansive and it would have been yeah very and impactful. it's often interesting when you're in the room with people who are coming up with these policies like a change to you know something about um a certain social security benefit often the people who are coming up with the policies and the people who are costing the policies are all in this kind of canberra bubble world and so they can think well okay if their income was a bit lower or higher they wouldn't get x but they don't think about okay well what if you know, we've thought about renters and homeowners, what happens to people in share houses, what happens to homeless people, what happens to migrants, what happens to people who are like on and off this benefit, what happens to people with, you know, these child custody arrangements. And they just think on this really like narrow white bread, a really comfortable vision of a person. And often the people who are really impacted by social security changes are people whose lives are complex and who really need that support most. And they're just like thrown straight under the bus by this. Because almost the people in the room, even when they mean well, just have no a conception of the breadth of experience out there. Yeah, right. Like um, that, that mechanism stuff as well. Like when you live life on the margins, like a, a little change has like a marginal shift has a major impact for you. And I think that, um, yeah, particularly like one, one of the things that I think of as an example of this is the partner income test to access social security is one of the biggest drivers of the people who are in violent, uh, like in a Yeah, one of, would... one of the most like hostile pieces of policy we have, I think, is the partner income test. Right, because it, it prevents people from accessing social security of, like with without having to involve their partner and that means that they're then subject to that person and have to get their income through them it's such an obvious like that changing that would have been i think like oh we're serious about fixing domestic violence mm, yeah that would be a really inspiring piece of domestic violence policy but i think it would go with you know it's part of this whole like apparatus of control when you receive a centrelink payment of this idea that you know, you have to submit your income, your partner has to, you might be raided, they might inspect your toothbrushes, like all this kind of uh, sense of control and coercion that you're not entitled to this money, you're not entitled to a sense of security, like what little you have you need to be grateful for and it could be taken at any minute if you don't follow all these rules. Yeah, there's a kind of dehumanisation there. I've done some work on this on, um, it's like the idea of economic dignity. I think I talked about this the last time I was on the podcast, but um, there's... Yeah, very deliberate policies that um, that they subvert or remove 
the agency of people um, and, and they treat them as inferior uh, in, in ways that are toxic and harmful to your sense of self. And it, 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 that's the kind of stuff that makes you really feel like the cruelty is the point. Yep. As, um, as always, we get back to flood, you know, everything sucks. <laughs> I don't know where to go from there. Budget's bad, numbers bad, government's bad. The Labour Party also bad. We haven't spoken about it today, but uh, yeah, the, the Gillard era changes to single parent payment, a real classic example of that dehumanisation and all the like chaos and harm caused by that partner income test. Yeah, what we were saying before of, of um, you know, looking at the budget and kind of thinking about what sort of society it's trying to produce and like how it's kind of calling on different people to act and behave in different ways, I think makes for some good final thoughts. And it, it really is that it's, it's, you know, it's, it's calling on like poor people to think of themselves as children and it's giving a huge amount of money to, to any business who can also like treat people like children and dehumanize them. Um, and largely just facilitating an economy built on, built on the extraction of, of, of rural Australia by, by international mining companies. And it's, it's depressing to see it happen again and again. Yep, pretty much. Well, Jeremiah, do you want to uh, shout out specifically the name of your organisation again? I've already forgotten it. So for my uh, benefit alone, I want yeah. to go and find your paper. Uh, the, so the financial wellbeing report hasn't been released yet, but I'm with the Centre for Social Impact. Um, we've got, you can read our budget analysis. It's like on our website. Um, and uh, I've tweeted about it repeatedly. Good times. stuff. Very long overdue. Anyone taking any uh, form of um, incisive view on the budget papers? We try. We try. Look, actually, I'll, I should. I'll come back when that report does come out because I think it's something that listeners of Flood would like. Uh, yeah, and I think often we talk around um, some changes to social security uh, in various ways in Flood. It'd be really good to dig into some specific things in there. Mm. Absolutely. Well, excellent. Thanks so much for coming along, Jeremiah, and also for Maddie for explaining to me how a budget works. I didn't know, and now I do. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> All right. Bye. Thanks. See ya. Bye.